to lay a foundation in our hearts and in our minds as believers. Uh, We are called to be disciples, which means we are learners. And of course, we believe this is the inspired word of God, so we give it its due attention in our life. And we desire to learn it, have this book open in our life. And uh, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And of course, as the pastor uh, teaching, and and God's going to bless us. And this particular book, the book of Acts, is a wonderful, wonderful uh, study for us. It's a very special, unique book. And as we go through it, um, I I believe many different questions will be answered uh, relating to our own faith, our own personal walk. And we really want to see where this book fits in, in the canon of Scripture. So if you have a Bible, if you don't have one handy, that's fine. But I always like to do this, is hold the pages of the book of Acts between our fingers and uh, we pray together. So 28 chapters. And hold them between our fingers and, and let's pray. So, Father, we want to thank you for this window of opportunity tonight. We pray for this night and these Wednesday nights together to be a special journey with you through this book, that you would give us so much through these pages that your spirit would quicken us and give us an understanding uh, of this book, the perspective, the purpose, the heart and the unique flavor of the book of Acts and, and, and all through the scriptures we pray you would quicken us and teach us and bless this class and time tonight in Jesus name, amen, amen. Okay, so let's start by thinking about where this book fits in what we call the canon, the 66 inspired books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And for a moment, does this have a pointer? Oh, it does. Okay, for a moment, let's think about the Old Testament. Um, And of course, though we have two Testaments and 66 books, we understand this is one book. It is, it is given to us by one God for a very clear purpose of his self-revelation and a revelation of his redemptive plan for fallen men on the earth. Hi, Philip, come on in. So the Old Testament, and we were actually just starting this yesterday, the Old Testament um, is taking, taking us somewhere in that revelation. It is... It is It is very clear that from the inception of the Old Testament, God is bringing us in his desire to reveal his plan of revelation. He's taking us on a journey. And as you go through the Old Testament, it's clear that you see that someone is coming. There are prophecies, there are types, there are shadows, that the Old Testament is pregnant with an expectation Someone is coming, someone is coming, all the way through the Old Testament. So it starts off uh, with the first five books. We call them, sometimes they are called the Law, or the Torah, or the Pentateuch, or the books of Moses, all the same thing. The five, five-fold vessel, the Pentateuch means. The five books of Moses. And uh, this is followed by the historical books of the Old Testament, from Joshua to Esther, 
And um, this, as soon as Joshua leads the people over into the promised land, followed by the judges and the kings and the season of the prophets, that very crucial part of Israel's history of him bringing them out of bondage into the promised land and settling there with kings and priests. That's followed by, um, I think this battery is dying, but maybe I won't use that. Followed by the wisdom literature, um, sometimes called the poetical books, and then the prophetical section, usually divided to five major prophets, not because they are greater in importance, usually just because of the size. Isaiah is the biggest book, and then Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so on, and his little book of Lamentations. And then the 12 minor prophets at the end. And all of these books are to bring the reader, to bring the, the, to bring the fallen man to the, to the place of seeing that Christ is the one who meets the expectation of the Old Testament. He was the one that the Old Testament prophets were speaking of, the Old Testament Jews in the Old Testament were waiting for. And he beautifully came in the New Testament. So when you turn to the New Testament, Matthew 1.1 opens with the words, and this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. So all through the Old Testament, someone is coming, someone is coming, and then you turn to the New Testament and someone is here. The one who fulfills all of the prophecies not just 10 prophecies or 20, but hundreds of prophecies, not vague prophecies, but specific detailed prophecies that he fulfilled in his first coming. So, uh, in the New Testament, of course, just to finish that off, um, we have the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, which cover a very unique uh, four different perspectives, uh, portraits, if you like, of Christ, the Messiah, um, from the events surrounding his birth all the way through his public ministry, and of course, culminating with the work of redemption, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and in Luke and Mark, also the, the ascension. And then we have our book of Acts. We'll get back to that. Then, of course, we have Paul's Um, letters to the churches. Then we have Paul's letters, four letters to individuals, the first three uh, to pastors and then Philemon. And then we have the general epistles, which are the ones that are written by anyone else but Paul, so Peter and John and Jude. And then the uh, apocalyptic book of Revelation, of course, stands on its own, really we could say as a future historical book. But the real historical book of the New Testament is the book of Acts that we're looking at. Of course, the Gospels cover a, we could put them on a timeline, that's history, but we could really call them biographical rather. But Acts is really the historical book. And what a, what a crucial, uh, crucial book it is. Let's ask the question, why there are four Gospels? Because we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts right on the tail. And the reason there are four Gospels, at least one of them, uh, we know the Gospels are not identical. In fact, they're very different. They're different in content. They're different in flavor. The book of John, for example, is 90% unique material to the book of John. Most of the stories and miracles recorded in John are unique to John. So the Gospels are different. 
in content and purpose and flavor, but they serve together for the same purpose of presenting uh, Christ the Messiah. But they present him in four very different ways. And part of the reason for that is in the Old Testament, there are four different veins of prophecy. There are prophecies of the, of the Messiah who would be the king who would come, the Messiah who would be the servant who would come, the Messiah who would be the man, the Lord in the flesh who would come, and also the Messiah who would be the Lord in his deity who would come. And it wasn't always easy for the Jew to reconcile these different portraits or different viewpoints of the same man. They couldn't say, how could this be the same one? If you read 1 Peter 1, 11 and 12, it says that the prophets, as they were writing, as they were being inspired, were also inquiring of God, saying, who is this we're writing about, and when will it happen? So, for example, when Isaiah was writing chapter 11 on the glory of the king and the kingdom, and when he was writing Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant who would be bruised for our iniquities, in his heart he said, Lord, who is this? And when will it happen? And in verse 12 of 1 Peter 1, it says, the Holy Spirit answered the prophets and said, it's not for you to know. But it is for those, and Peter says, but it is for us. It is the church, the New Testament believers. The prophets recorded and predicted the coming of Christ so that we as New Testament believers, particularly with our with the um, fulfillments that we see in the scriptures, can be so persuaded and convinced and firm in our faith, knowing that Christ is surely the, the Messiah and the Son of God and, of course, the Savior. So this explains, in part, why there are four Gospels. Because each Gospel has a particular focus. Matthew, for example, is a Gospel that really focuses on the kingship of Christ. Um, its, re- its audience is really to the Jew. And, of course, the Jew, their picture or portrait of the Messiah was the king um, who would come and finally deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. They were waiting for a Messiah, something like David, who would come along and finally deliver them from their oppression. They were waiting. Oh, the king is coming. The king is coming. When is the king coming? This is one of the reasons they didn't recognize him when he came because he didn't fit their one portrait. Um, It's in the book of Matthew that we read that the wise men came, the magi came, and what was their question? Where is the king of the Jews? And of course, at the end, he is crowned, albeit with a crown of thorns, and recognized as the king of the Jews on the cross. It's in the book of Matthew that he speaks with sweeping kingly authority when he condemns the Jewish leaders in Matthew 23, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Moses said unto you, but I say unto you. Incredible authority. And of course, in Matthew, 32 times we read the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, which is only used two other times in all of the New Testament. There's a definite emphasis in Matthew of the king and the kingdom and all of the prophecies that he fulfilled. In the book of Mark, there's an emphasis on the servanthood of Christ. <clears throat> One other thing to mention about Matthew, by the way, is it starts with this long royal genealogy linking the Messiah through the line of David, for which, of course, the Messiah had to be of David's line. And the genealogy of a king is of 
incredible importance, which is why the book of Mark doesn't, doesn't have a genealogy, because you, we're not so concerned with the genealogy of a servant or a slave. And in the book of Mark, Jesus is seen getting straight into the activity of his public ministry. He is healing, he is serving. Um, the key word in the book of Mark is the word immediately. We read it often, and immediately, and immediately. It's the word of a servant. The book of Luke focuses on the humanity of Christ. If you want to see the Lord praying, of course he prays in every gospel, but there's a real emphasis of him praying, his humanity, his frailty. In the book of Luke is the longest account of the suffering in Gethsemane. Um, The book of Luke focuses on Jesus the man. The genealogy of Luke doesn't link him to David as the king, but all the way to Adam as a member of, the, of humanity. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells them to only preach to the lost sheep of Israel. But in the book of Luke, which is the audience really is the Gentiles, he tells them to go and preach the gospel everywhere, to every man. There's a different emphasis And finally, the book of John, which in a sense stands on its own. We're hoping to do some kind of series on John in the future. It's an amazing gospel. And the book of John reveals the Messiah in his deity as the Lord. Um, The genealogy, if we would say it would have one, is very simply, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. That very short divine genealogy of the Father and the Son, that's it. And of course, all through the book of John, we see certain signs that are recorded to show that he certainly was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and the Son of God. And in the Old Testament, there are actually... Four, if you see these little references here, there are four Old Testament prophecies relating to the Messiah that begin with the word behold. In Zechariah 9.9, behold your king. In Isaiah 42, behold your servant. Zechariah 6.12, behold the man, and that's speaking of the Messiah. And in Isaiah 40 verse 9, behold the Lord. Or, or God, again, relating to the Messiah. So four veins of prophecies, and each gospel addresses that particular portrait. So the book of Matthew answers the question, um, is Jesus the king? And clearly he is, and, has, and he has come. Mark, is he the servant, and so on. So, and this is quickly followed by the book of Acts. And if you see on this little diagram here are Old Testament books. We have the, the cross, the work of redemption, right in the middle. The, the uh, biographical gospels capturing the life and the work of Christ. And then this is our study, this little historical book which is nestled between the gospels and the epistles. And in a certain way, it bridges the gap between them. Because the book of Acts is really the sequel to the Gospels and the introduction to the, to the epistles.
What do we mean by that? Go there, yeah. Okay. What we mean by that is, imagine for a moment if the book of Acts wasn't in the Bible. I'll demonstrate. You ready? No, no. If the book of Acts wasn't in the Bible, it would be quite a whole because we would look to the epistles and we would say, wait a minute, who's Paul? Who's Silas? Rome? How did we get to Rome? How did the gospel get to Europe? Where did the church of Philippi come from? But in the book of Acts, we find those questions answered in that important narrative, in that historical account. We open to the book of Philippians. We read Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy to the church in Philippi, to the elders and the deacons. And you say, where did that church come from? You turn to Acts 16 and you see the story of how it happened. So it's a, a very important book. There will be a huge hole without it. We could say that the book of Acts to the Gospels is as Joshua is to the Pentateuch. Imagine you go through all the Pentateuch with all the promises and all the deliverance from Egypt and then there's no book of Joshua. Joshua is where the promise of taking the land begins to be experienced. And in the same way, the book of Acts is finally where the the fruit of the gospel begins to be seen. In the gospels, Jesus said, I will build my church. And in the book of Acts, we see him um, beginning and continuing to build his church. Just a word about the chronology in the Bible. Um, Just as with the Old Testament, Not all the books are written in chronological order. Um, It's written more in a logical order for us to to approach it. For example, all of the prophetical books in the Old Testament, you would have to take those out and slot them into the historical books, right? Because the prophets had their ministry during the Old Testament history. In the same way, all of the epistles that Paul wrote... Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, we would have to take them out and put them into the book of Acts because they were written at certain points in Paul's journey or the end of his life in Rome. In fact, at one point, I had a a chronological Bible and it was one of the many things I had to let go of when we moved back to England. But uh, anyway, it's a very unique thing, a chronological Bible. It's really just a study tool. But the beautiful thing about it is when you are reading, for example, the books of Samuel, the Psalms that David wrote are put in where he wrote them. Um, Or when you read the books of Kings or the book of Ezra, the prophets are put in where they had their ministry. So it's quite insightful. And when you get to the New Testament, of course, the Gospels are all overlapped chronologically. And then in the book of Acts, where he wrote the epistle is actually in the chapter. So it's, it's a great um, study reference. Not so easy to read, but it's, it's, it's a good, good study reference. So this diagram shows us just that. On the top there, these are the chapters, and it shows us where the epistles will be written. And as we go through the book of Acts, I will do my best to say, oh, it was at this point it's believed that Paul wrote the book of Thessalonians or whatever. So that will be part of our... Uh, we'll, we'll cover that as we go. Okay. Luke. Luke was the author. 
He was, of course, the author of the Gospel of Luke, and he also was the author of the book of Acts. Luke is a wonderful uh, character study in the Bible. Um, he, of course, was a doctor. He's referred to at the end of Colossians 4. Um, Paul writing, of course, says, and our beloved physician, Luke. Beloved physician. He was a doctor. But, of course, he was also a missionary. He accompanied Paul famously on the second missionary journey, which will be a wonderful part of our study. Um, and we'll notice in the commentary, you can actually look in chapter 16 yourself, for example, that, that it goes from we to they. And it's where Luke joins them. And he's writing about them saying, and they went here and they went there. And all of a sudden it says, and we went. And it's Luke's subtle way of saying that's where he joined them. And then it goes back to they and that's when he left them. So he was on those missionary journeys. He wasn't just a historian, though he was an excellent historian, an excellent writer. His, both Luke and Acts have been critically um, uh, studied uh, to that conclusion, that he was an incredibly well, well-written, accurate historian, and that was one of his main purposes. It was just to record historically the facts of what happened. But he was much more than a historian, much more than a doctor, but he was a missionary. He was, a, he was with Paul in the journey. In fact, at the end of Paul's life, when he was waiting to hear his sentence, when he wrote Second Timothy, the last thing he ever wrote, in chapter 4 he writes, Only Luke is with me. Quite some words. Many had forsaken him and didn't want anything to do with Paul at that point, but Luke was faithfully by his side right at the end. And of course, um, it's possible that Luke was a Gentile. As far as we can tell, he perhaps wasn't a Jew, but he was a Gentile. If that's true, and there's a question about it, but if it's true, he's the only Gentile author in the Bible of all the 66 books. And, um, and it was written to Theophilus. Now, if you have your Bible, and if you look in the opening verse... Verse 1, we see that. He says, The former treaty I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Or in this version, the former book, or the former letter, or the former writing. In other words, he said to you, he's saying, Theophilus, you know what I wrote to you last time? And what is he referring to? The book of Luke. If you look at the beginning of Luke, it's also addressed to Theophilus. But there he calls him, O Excellent Theophilus, which is a title that's usually reserved for someone who's of great importance. We see later in Acts, certain high-ranking men such as Festus and Felix, they are given that title, O Excellent Felix, O Excellent Festus. And here, O Excellent Theophilus, he was obviously a man of some renown. He was a Gentile leader who we could presume had been greatly affected by the gospel, had become a believer, was uh, being informed by Luke, very interested in the narrative and the story and the gospel of Christ, so much so in that relationship, Luke wrote a second letter to him, perhaps with the idea that the gospel would be 
carried or, or um, circulated by this, by this influential man. We know little about him, um, but that's who the book is written to. So, we could say that the book of Acts is like Luke part 2. If we were put them on a timeline together, there, it's about 66 years that it covers from the beginning of Luke. So remember, that's the, um, the announcement of the birth and John the, and, and John the Baptist and Zacharias, the priest and everything, the, the shepherds on the hillside. From then, all the way through to the end of the book of Acts, where Paul is imprisoned in Rome, is about 66 years. It's 52 chapters altogether. So in a, in a sense, we could think of them almost as one book or two volumes of the same book, but definitely the same timeline. And we can see in the book of Acts that there is a continuing work. In the verse that we just read, he says, in the former book, I told you of all that Jesus, what? What does it say? Began both to do and to teach. And verse 2 says, until the day in which he was taken up. Because at the end of Luke, he, he ends with the ascension where Christ ascends. And that's where he begins with the, with the beginning of Acts. In this chapter 1, the ascension. So he says, listen, Theophilus, I told you all that Jesus began to do from all the way up until the ascension. And that's really what the book of Luke is. It's all that Jesus began to do and to teach up until the ascension. And the book of Acts is now really what he is continuing to do on the earth, but by his spirit and through his people. So, it's a continuing work. The book of Acts is a work that we could say is unfinished. Certainly the work of the work for redemption was finished once and for all on the cross. Remember Christ said on the cross, it is finished. The work for our salvation is finished, but there's another work that is certainly continuing. And that is the work of building his church. Christ said, I will build my church. And you'll notice, hi Andy coming in. You'll notice that when Jesus said this, it was of course yet future. I will build my church. And when that's the first mention of the word church in the Bible, Matthew 16, 18. I will build my ecclesia. And the disciples are kind of like, what's that? That's a new word. You'll build your what? Shouldn't we be talking about the kingdom? What do you mean I will build my church? Because there was a, a turning point there in the Gospels where Jesus began to not speak about the kingdom, but began to speak about building his church. And it was yet future at this point. I will build my church. And when did that building begin? But of course in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit uh, descended and the, and the church was born. So a continuing work. And this is the book of Acts that we're going to be studying. is the birth of the church, the continuing work of, of uh, the Lord on the earth, um, and the, the, the book of Acts, which you might have in your book, maybe in your book, version, no, but in some Bibles it's called the Acts of the Apostles, which is perhaps a little bit of a misleading title to give the book because there's not so much of the Apostles mentioned in the book. As uh, James is mentioned, uh, he's martyred, um, 
Peter, of course, is instrumental in the transition of the book. Um, uh, and John, of course, is mentioned. But to call it the Acts of the Apostles is a little bit misleading. When you get into the book, you begin to see there's not so much about the Acts of the Apostles and, and, until we get to Paul, who is the apostle born out of due time. And the second half of the book is all about his missionary journeys. But perhaps a better title would be the Acts of Acts of the Holy Spirit or the, the work of Jesus through the apostles or the acts of the Holy Spirit, whatever, semantics maybe. But um, we definitely see that it is, it is the Lord that is doing the work. It is him who is building his church. He certainly uses people, but he is the one who is building. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, he that labors, that's any laborer in church work or missionary work, he that labors, labors in vain for nothing unless the Lord is really doing the building. 1 Corinthians 3.7 says, Apollos, one waters, another, sorry, one sows, another waters, but it is God who gives the increase. But the next verse says, and we are co-laborers with him. So we are laborers. We are co-laborers with him, but he must do the building. Jesus didn't say, you will build my church. He said, I will build my church. Hi, hi, come on in. So, uh, the time of the writing of Acts, it certainly was before 70 AD, because that's when uh, the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Of course, there's no mention of that here. It was certainly before 66 to 68 AD, because traditionally that's when Paul was martyred under the persecution of Nero by being beheaded. And of course, the book ends with him in Rome living, so it's certainly before then. And Nero's persecution is not mentioned, which is about 66 AD also. So it's before then. Most believe it was around 62 um, AD, 60 to 62 AD. And just to comment on the end of the book, it's a very interesting ending. It's almost as if there are chapters missing. It ends quite abruptly with Paul in Rome and he's teaching and he's ministering and and then the book ends and you, you almost feel like it should be continuing. And I believe that that's purposed because, of course, It is continuing. The book of Acts certainly has not finished in one sense. Um, Many often term this period as Acts 29 in the sense that we are the, the, the next unwritten chapter, that the work of building the church is continuing and that's such an exciting part of our Christian life and our church life as a vision that God is continuing to build his church. Um, Christ was on the earth in the Gospels. He ascended into heaven, sent his Holy Spirit, and now he says, you are my body on the earth. He was confined to one place in Jerusalem at one time, but now he says, you are my body all over the earth to take take the good news to people. So a couple of things on the purpose of the book. I tried to condense it into four, four little buzzwords. So first of all, There's a historical purpose in that Luke is setting out 
very clearly just to record, historically record the facts, exactly what happened. There is a transitional purpose, and we'll get there when we get there, but um, particularly around chapters um, 9 to 12, we can see a real transition. And the transition is from an emphasis in Jerusalem, going, beginning to go to the uttermost parts of the world, focusing on Peter, now beginning to focus on Paul, and focusing exclusively on the Jews, but now also to the Jew and the Gentile. And that transition is clearly seen uh, as you look at the book of Acts. So it's historical, transitional, contextual. Again, we mentioned that, that it gives us a certain context for the epistles, which, which is just a, a word meaning the letters, the letters of Paul in the New Testament. Where did those churches come from? We find that context in the book of Acts. And then, of course, inspirational. It certainly has an inspirational purpose. Um, We can see this is a dynamic book, a moving book, a book with feet and hands and vision and heart and love and the gospel and people's lives being touched and changed. It's an incredible uh, book that should inspire the heart of the New Testament believer as it does. The divisions of the book, and this is just, of course, an introduction uh, class tonight. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, hammer this home as we go. But we could say the first seven chapters are, um, are really a focus of the early work in Jerusalem. Um, if you like, the camera is just focused in Jerusalem, and that's all you're seeing. The birth of the church... Uh, the, the beginning of the church, the, how they uh, met together, the choosing of the deacons and the serving, the growth of the church, but it's all in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 to 12, again, we mentioned that transition, and it's really, we could say, gently encouraged by the Lord through allowing persecution in the church. Great persecution came in in Jerusalem. They were told to go into all the world, but that's not what they were doing. So the Lord says, okay, I can help with that a little bit. And the persecution or the scattering or the dispersia helped them leave Jerusalem and actually fulfill Acts 1.8, going from Jerusalem to Samaria, Judea, and the othermost parts of the world. Because as they went, of course, they took the gospel with them. And then the last uh, part of the book, really the second half of the book, looks at the missionary journeys of Paul, which we, we, we say three main missionary journeys of Paul. So, let's go to the first chapter. Just after we set the stage, let's go back to chapter one. And um, we'll see how we, we go here. So, verse one, we see he's writing to uh, Theophilus, of the things, verse 2, that the Lord began to do. Verse 3 says, to whom he showed himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days. This is the only place in the New Testament that tells us how much time elapsed when Jesus was risen from between when he rose to when he finally ascended. And it tells us it was 40 days. Without this verse, we wouldn't know how many days. 
Christ was seen. It wasn't one day. It wasn't just the fleeting appearances by a few. But for 40 days, not for the full 40 days, but he was coming again and again and appearing. And not just for fleeting moments. It says he was teaching them. Look at the end of the verse. Speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. He wasn't just passing and breaking bread for a few moments. He was teaching them uh, with a purpose of clear preparation. And what was he teaching them about? It says, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And this, this deserves a question. What is the kingdom of God that he's referring to? What was he teaching them about? And why was he teaching them on that theme? What is the kingdom of God? Or sometimes we read the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of Christ. And in certain verses, I won't give them to you now, but I have them, but in certain verses, those terms are really used interchangeably. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of our Christ. In Luke chapter 1, a few times during the inspired um, uh, prayer and uh, when uh, the, the priest, when his tongue is finally loose, John the Baptist, his father begins to, and he makes reference to the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. After the line, he refers to David's covenant, refers to the Messiah would sit in the throne of David and have a kingdom on the earth. It's not merely something that's symbolic or allegorical, but it is a literal kingdom with a literal throne that will happen on the earth. This is referring to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, which God made with David's son Solomon, saying, you know what? In your line, and this is why the Messiah was, off, was referred to as the son of David, in your line, the Messiah will come and he will sit on a throne on the earth and reign. So as a Jew at this time in the New Testament and when Christ was here, what was the Jewish expectation? They were waiting, at least the ones who were in faith, many were not, just as it is today. But there were a remnant that we see, for example, in the book of Luke, um, Simeon and Anna, there were a certain remnant who were waiting for the Messiah. They had a living faith. And every day they had prayer and expectation, longing for the coming of the Messiah. And the Jewish expectation was that there will be the personal coming of a Messiah king who would reign, who would liberate them, and who would begin what would be called the Davidic kingdom or the Messianic kingdom. And the fulfillment of all the kingdom descriptions in the Old Testament. There is so much that is said, a huge chunk of the Old Testament that is writing about the coming kingdom that will happen on the earth. But what happened when Christ came? Did they say, oh, the king is here and accept him as their king? No. They rejected him. Um, he came as their Messiah. Remember, he wept over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you, but you would not. With tears, he 
was, was so broken that they did not accept him, his heart for the Jewish people. In fact, it's said that there are, were three miracles, not recorded in the scriptures, but in the traditional writings of the Jews. They, they understood that there were three miracles that only the Messiah would be able to fulfill when he came. And it was the healing of a Jewish leper, it was the healing of a man that was born blind, and it was the, the casting out of a dumb demon. And Jesus did all three of those. In Mark 1, the leper, John 9, the blind man, and in Matthew 12, which of course is the book of the king to the Jews, he cast out the dumb demon. But instead of saying, this is the Messiah. He has performed all the miracles. What did they say? They said, oh, you do this by the power of the devil. And Jesus said, this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And this, this sin will not be forgiven. And, and of course, there are some churches who teach that you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit today and lose your salvation, all this kind of That's not what it means at all. He was speaking in a particular context. He was speaking to the, the leaders of the nation of Israel, speaking to them as the leaders and saying, this, this sin of rejecting the Messiah of whom the Holy Spirit has testified of will not be forgiven this generation, but you will pay the penalty. And they did in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. That generation did pay. And in Matthew 12, there is a turning point. And in fact, you can, you can pick out the turning point in each of the Gospels in different places. I think it's Luke 9 and Matthew 12 and different places, but it's the same turning point. It is the turning point from when the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus then began, it says that he began to look towards Jerusalem. His face was set like a flint and from that time he was not thinking about the throne that would be established on the earth, but he was thinking about the cross on which he would hang on the hill. And this is in Matthew uh, 16. And if you want, you can turn with me. Just turn to Matthew 16. And we'll see that turning point, for example, in the book of Matthew. This is after the famous setting when Jesus said, Who do men say that I am? Remember that? He's with his disciples. And they said, Oh, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And then he asked the searching question, Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers with the incredible declaration and confession and says, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. Verse 16. And Jesus said, Oh, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, and here's the famous phrase that we've mentioned, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. By the way, of course, we know that there are many today, certain teaching and institutions that claim that Peter being the first pope is recognized here and that Jesus was saying, upon you, Peter, 
You are the rock, Peter, and upon you I will build my church. But that's not what he was saying. In fact, in the Greek, there's two different words. Peter's name is Petros, which means stone. And upon this rock is Petra. It's more like the rock of Gibraltar. They're two very distinct words. To the Greek ear, it would have been clear what he was saying. He was saying, Peter, you are a stone, but upon this rock, what rock? It was the confession that Peter had just made on who Christ was. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon that rock, this rock, the confession of who I am, I will build my church on that. And of course, that is how he builds his church, when there is a personal faith acceptance of who Christ is and who the Bible lays him out to be. And when someone believes that, they are added to the church. Christ builds his church in this way. And we'll also make reference to the next verse. And he says, I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And... um, It's interesting that he said to Peter, I will give you the keys. What do keys do? Unlock and open doors. And through the book of Acts, and we'll see it together, in Acts 2, and I think it's 8 and 10, Peter is the instrument that is used to bring the gospel to the Jews in Acts 2, to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and to the Gentiles in Acts 10. He certainly is given the keys, and the gospel goes, according to Acts 1.8, to the Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, the Gentile world. But notice the next couple of verses here. He charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ, verse 20. And verse 21, and from that time forth, it's a very key moment, Note those words, from that time forth, it's a changing point, he began to show his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. This is the first mention of the church and the first time we see Jesus now beginning not to speak about the kingdom, but to be speaking about the cross. For of course, God is eternal, and he knows the beginning from the end. But, on our timeline, so to speak, this is a turning point, where the program changed. And Christ now, instead of being accepted as the Messiah to set up his kingdom on the earth, was rejected as the Messiah, and now there was going to be another age called the church age, which is where we are now, which so far has been 2,000 years. But what's important to realize is that the kingdom has not been canceled, but it's been postponed. The kingdom is still coming. It's still part of his unconditional covenant. But now the gospel, and this was his purpose, of course, all the way along from Old Testament Uh, prophecies predicting that the gospel would go unto the Gentiles. And this is how it happened. The Jewish people, um, the apple of his eye, his chosen people who he set his love upon them, and they were to be used as an instrument of grace to all men, all mankind. And that's what the Abrahamic covenant, of course, teaches in 
Genesis 12, when he says, Abraham, through your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that was through Abraham's and David's seed, the coming of the Messiah, the work of the cross, and through the good news of the gospel. So it was always in God's mind. Uh, Revelation 13.8 says that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Work that one out. In God's eternal mind's eye, Christ was slain before the foundation of the world, before Adam and Eve were even created, let alone sinned. It was in his mind that the lamb would be slain. But this is the point on the timeline when the Messiah is recognized to be rejected and the program, we could say, shifted. And now he begins to look towards the cross and teach on the cross. Okay, back to Acts 1. So we said all that to say, what, did he, what does it mean when he was teaching them about the kingdom? He was teaching them about the kingdom, but now in a new context. That there was going to be a change. Right after this, he tells them, verse 4, to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which was the Holy Spirit. And it's curious, he says in verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days after. We actually find out it's about 10 days after. It's when the day of Pentecost had fully come, 50 days from the cross. So he, was, he rose again, he was with them 40 days, we read in verse 2 and 3, and then another 10 days between the ascension of Christ and the descending of the Holy Spirit. Ten days they were waiting in unity, in prayer together. And they were waiting for what? The promise of the Father. We remember through the Gospels how Jesus had spoken to them about, um, about the, the comforter or the paraclete is the Greek word. Another who will come alongside and comfort and teach and lead them. Uh, An important verse, for example, in John 14, verse 17, he says, The Spirit of the truth that the world cannot receive or know, but you know, and notice these words, for he is with you and shall be in you. Because before Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended and indwelt every man, there was a different We could say a different kind of relationship with the Holy Spirit for the Old Testament believer. The Holy Spirit will come upon believers and then only certain believers and then only for a certain time or task. But the New Testament relationship is very different. It's every believer is indwelt always and is available at all times as we yield and trust in him through our personal cross. We can be spirit-filled in a moment. Any believer... So he says, the Holy Spirit who is with you, but shall be in you. And where was he looking to? He was looking to Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit would descend and indwell every believer and give this brand new um, um, relationship between believers, where they would be flesh of each other's flesh, part of each other, the same body, same life, drinking of the same spirit in the the fellowship that we have uh, in the body of Christ. 
So he tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And what do they say? And this is, this is curious. Verse 6. We read the word, therefore. So when we read that word, we realize it's connected to the, the last verses. He said, wait for the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they asked him this question. Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament scriptures was often associated with the coming of the kingdom. Sounds like it's a misplaced question, but they, they remember, they've still got the kingdom in their mind. It really took the coming of the Holy Spirit before they began to really realize uh, the program and the church age and what God was doing. So they were saying, will you fulfill, will you now bring the kingdom? Yes. I'm, I'm kind of changing as I go, but, but right now I've got a King James, but I'm also quoting other translations. But yeah, yeah. What translation do you have? NIV. Okay, okay, good. Okay, so. So will you restore the kingdom? And maybe we'll just finish here, here with this uh, question tonight and pick up in Acts 1 next week. They said, will you restore the kingdom? Now, is this a good question, a foolish question, reasonable question that they would ask? Um, there are some churches today that would say this is a very foolish question because they would say, well, obviously, because the Jews rejected Christ as the Messiah, now he has washed his hands of them. And now the, the promises and the covenant promises that were promised to the Jews are now to be spiritually fulfilled in the church. And we now as the church are spiritual Israel. And there is no literal kingdom, but there is a spiritual kingdom now. Um, But we, we believe, at least I believe, and extend that to you as you, you develop your own convictions, but, but uh, I believe clearly that the Bible speaks of the covenant that he made with Israel was an unconditional covenant, which simply means it's unconditional. That's what it means. It's the very premise of what grace is. The Mosaic covenant was a, was a conditional covenant, and that had certain consequences for sure. Of, of whether they would in, inhabit the land. I mean, they, that's why they were ultimately taken into captivity, etc. But the Abrahamic covenant is laced with the words, I will, all the way through that in Genesis 12. I will, I will, I will, I will. And then also Second Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, referring to the throne and the kingdom. I will, I will. There's no, it's not I will if you will. It's I will. So yes, there was a, um, we could say, a change in the program. And if you read, study Romans 9, 10, and 11, where it speaks about the teaching on where, 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 does the Jewish, where, do, where does the Jew sit now in the program. And he clearly says, um, where the Jews did not accept the Messiah, that has fallen out to our salvation as Gentiles in an incredible instrument of grace to all men, 
of all, all tongues everywhere. So, this wasn't a foolish question. Um, and you'll notice how Christ answered it is very curious for us, very insightful, let's say, for us. In verse 7, Jesus said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. He didn't correct them and say, Oh, no, guys, no, no, there's no kingdom anymore. It's all over. Everything's changed. And, and you know, I went to the cross and now I've risen and, and now we're going to have a church and it's all different. He didn't say that. He said, It's not for you to know the times or the chronos is the Greek, or the order, or the sequence of events. He's basically saying, okay, maybe you don't understand the, the eschatological, or the end times timeline right now, but that's okay. He actually says, it's not for you to know that. Is the kingdom now? No, and it's not for you to know right now when it will be, but it will be. That's the point. Not for you to know the chronos, which is the order or the sequence, or the karyos, which is the dates or the length. In other words, it's not for you to know when it's going to happen and also how long it's going to be. For in fact, the length of the kingdom is not referred to in the Old Testament, but in Revelation 20, it says he will reign for a thousand years on the earth. So in the book of Revelation, it is revealed how long that kingdom on the earth will be. So if you look at this timeline, we could see it now. Jesus came and died on the cross, and this is the dispensation of grace, or the church age. And, it's, and uh, at the end of the church age, um, uh, there is the, 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 the church will be removed from the earth before a time of judgment on the earth. And then it's followed by the second coming of Christ. This keeps fading on me, sorry, which is right there. Right there. The second coming of Christ. And then, of course, he sets his kingdom up on the earth. We can save a lot of that for end times teaching in the, in the future, which I, which I love. So he says, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but, verse 8, but you shall receive power. This is the key verse of the book. A beautiful place for us to end tonight. The key verse of the book. You shall receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And of course, these are, we could say, concentric circles. Jerusalem moving out to other regions and to the uttermost parts of the world. This is really an echo of what we call the Great Commission. His last words to the, to, in, at the ends of the Gospels in Matthew 28, go into all the world, teach all nations, baptize in the making disciples. If you wanted to uh, capture the Great Commission in two phrases, I like these phrases. Evangelizing the lost and discipling the saved. Two groups of people, the lost and the saved. We evangelize the lost and we disciple the saved. And that's why we, we believe in teaching them, preaching the Bible and what we're doing tonight. 
learning the Bible and growing in our faith. It's part of the Great Commission. It's not only the evangelism, but also the teaching and the preaching. So he says, you shall be witnesses unto me. And this word is, it's, it's uh, I forget the exact phrase, but it's where we get the word martyr. You will be martyrs for me. And it's because the word came to be one who would testify of what he'd seen, but so many of them died for that testimony, the word came to mean one who would actually die for his faith. So the word kind of changed its meaning over through the church age because so many of these witnesses actually did give their, lose their life, give their life uh, for the gospel. Okay, so I think we'll end there today with this beautiful promise in Acts 1.8. This is before the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is setting us up for chapter 2 next week um, when the Holy Spirit comes, the birth of the church, when they actually do receive power. And that's another turning point in the book with incredible power and understanding and unction. Uh, These ignorant Galileans, most of them perhaps fishermen, uneducated men that God chose by his grace and his wisdom to equip them, empower them, and use them to take the gospel uh, into all the world. So, Father, we thank you tonight for these uh, verses, this introduction to this class tonight. We pray you give us a a growing appetite and hunger uh, for for this book, for your word, and we pray you teach us, give us questions and answers. We pray that you would give us personal understanding, handles on this book, that we will get to understand your grace, your plan of redemption on the earth. And we trust you for that. Bless, uh, bless us now as we, uh, as we fellowship and prepare to go and prepare our hearts for future weeks to come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My encouragement to you would be, uh, if you can, before the class, uh, perhaps have a read through the, the chapter that we anticipate we're going to get through. Um, uh, I remember taking this, this at Bible school and, and before, I, I had a, an hour free before the class and I would go into the library and I would read the chapter in two or three different versions, in the NIV, in the New King James, in the Amplified, and I would read it and then I, I found I would, there would, be, I would already, already have an idea of where we were going. It was really helpful. So if you have the chance to do that, it will help you. I also encourage you to get a notepad of some kind. Um, you'll be amazed at what a difference that makes. It helps you in your attention. You have something to refer to. You can write down questions. Uh, next week, you can read over it, prepare your heart. So get a notebook, be reading the chapters, and uh, as we are good stewards of, uh, of our call to be disciples. Okay, so God bless you. Any questions? Now would be a good time if you have any questions. Well, what was our difficulty with the Jews in as much that they are God's chosen people? always taught that, haven't we? And uh, putting the Messianic Jews to one side because they, because they're Christian Jews. Yes, right? yes. The Jews are God's chosen people, but as I've always understood it, and, and, and being taught, the only way into heaven is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Yet the Jews, the non-Messianic Jews, believe Jesus is not the Son of God, right. but he is a prophet. Right. So then how are they 
mainstream Jews ever going to get to heaven? They'll only ever get to heaven in the same way that any other man, woman, or child from any country, any nation will ever get to heaven. It's, they come to the personal recognition that Christ is who the Bible claims him to be. So, and Paul actually refers to, if you look again, Romans 9, 10, 11, he says, well, what profit is it to be a Jew? And he names some of them, that there are benefits, but um, individually, um, every Jew needs to recognize Christ as their personal savior in the same way. However, some of the confusion comes from, I think it's Romans 11.25, I want to say, it says, is where it says that all Israel shall be saved, which a lot of people stumble over that verse because they think, well, what is it, what that means? It means that if you're a Jew, you get saved, and it's definitely not what it means. It means, I'll, I'll summarize it quickly because there's a, a long version of this answer, but... Um, the tribulation period, which is a period of seven years, it's the period when the Antichrist will be revealed on the earth, right? It's, it's, it's also called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 5, because it's a time where, where Jacob, Israel, will, will go through incredible uh, torment and um, at the hand of the Antichrist, it will be the, the, the Second World War Holocaust will be is just a taste of what will happen in the tribulation. In fact, in the Second World War, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was um, one-third of the Jews in, in Europe were killed, but during the tribulation, two-thirds of all Jews on the earth will be killed. One-third of the Jews that enter the tribulation will, will, will live through it. And at the end of the tribulation, that, that remnant, that one-third, will look to Christ as their Messiah, and that remnant, which represents Israel, will be saved. So that verse in Romans where it says all of Israel shall be saved is, is prophetically looking to the end of the tribulation when all Israel will be saved as a nation, um, but individually now in this church age, uh, each one has to personally accept Christ. Okay, anyone else? Okay. We read here that um, the disciples were asked not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there. Is that correct? I think I read somewhere they were asked to go back to Jerusalem and wait there. Well, the end of the Gospels, they were told to go back to Jerusalem and wait. And then here they're in Jerusalem and he, he tells them to wait. Oh, I see. That's why I see. Yeah. So they're told to wait in Jerusalem, yeah. They've, they've, they've had the 40 days with him. They've been hearing teaching and they're equipped and they're ready, but in one sense, they are definitely not ready. He says, don't do anything, don't go anywhere. You wait because you need the Holy Spirit for the mission you're going to have. So, yeah. Yes. We must be ready at any time to witness, ready to witness the love of Christ in our lives. In the last two days, I have been given two opportunities witness yesterday and today. Yesterday I missed. Today I took advantage of. We must be ready. Gentleman, I spoke to a gentleman on the bus, knew here, about his time here, he was a doctor, about his time here, and the overworked, overworked health service. And right at the end of the conversation, he says, I'm trying to cling on to my Christianity. 
and I could have said to him and given him reason to cling on to it. He was losing it, but I missed the opportunity. Yeah. Today, today, a gentleman was working on my car, and he was being very kind, and I knew that what he was doing would take five minutes. So while he was doing it, and I didn't distract him, I said, have you heard of the Gideons? And he had. Um, he, he said, the little red book. I said, yes. He said, I've still got it. And this is 50 years ago. And he still had it. And there was an opportunity to, out of nothing. Yeah. We must be aware. Yeah. Well, we, we all understand that there is a, We all have understand what our natural insecurity is. We all have it. We, 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 there's a certain fear of, of, um, of, of the response, of the rejection, of being humiliated, of not saying the right thing. So there's a certain natural fear we have. But the comfort and what can overcome that fear, um, uh, it, for example, that verse, you shall receive power and be witnesses. Like There's a resting place for us to know that, that, um, that we're, not, we're, we're not left to do this in our own energy, in our own strength, in our own power, but he said you will receive power. And when you get those little unctions, there's a, there's a moment there where it takes a little step of faith, but when you, when you recognize it and you speak, you, you often sense that the God is right there in that moment. But it's only a moment. It can only be a moment. I, I had one, was it today? Yeah, I think it was today where I was, the lady said, oh, the Lord only gave us one pair of hands. And then and I wanted to, I wanted to, I thought, oh, there's a little, there's a little crack in the door. But I didn't. And so we have those times. And uh, we don't condemn ourselves because those times go by. But we do want to, uh, we do want to recognize them and, and maybe by faith say something and see if God pushes the door open. Yeah, so... He does that beautifully, yeah. The power is true. Yeah. He doesn't fool me around any day, but if I'm in a situation, then I say something, and it'll be just at the right time, the right person, and it strikes home. It's a powerful thing. It is. Don't give power for nothing. No. Who said that? Yeah. And the power of the Holy Spirit in that verse is given in relationship to, to being a witness. There's often a different emphasis and desire with the power of the Holy Spirit, but, but that is very powerful. God giving you the... If you witness that about yourself, as what Richard said, then you're there. You can see yeah. the kingdom of God is coming, it's in you and through you. Yeah. And then to rise other people. That's amazing. That's really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Matthew 10.20 says, In that hour, don't worry what you will say, but the words will be given to you. Yeah, they do, they do, they do. Yeah. I think it's 10.20, yeah. And there's just so much comfort in that. There is. Yeah. And it's no accident that God used, God chose those disciples. Remember, he chose them. And there's something beautiful about that. Because they were, he didn't choose the the high society, the educated. He didn't choose the, the Pharisees, the leaders, the scribes. He chose these fishermen from this little 
well, a large lake in the north of Israel with these little towns. And, uh, and in, in Acts 4, it says when they, and of course this is after Pentecost, when they spoke with boldness and wisdom, and it says that the Jewish leaders were amazed at the boldness and the wisdom that these men, and they said, aren't these ignorant Galileans? And it says they took note that they had been with Jesus. And, and I love that, that. It's not about to your education or your IQ or what a good orator you are, but you have the Holy Spirit and God can give you the keys to, to someone's, someone's heart and life. There's a famous story of Charles Spurgeon, who maybe you know is remembered to be the Prince of Preachers because um, although ironically he did have a, an accent which we might critique, but anyway, he was known to be the, 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 the uh, Prince of Preachers and if you read his sermons, you can, you can sense the, the, the unction and the devotion and, and uh, he, when he was not saved, he was on his way to his church and it was snowing so heavily that he couldn't get to his church, so he turned aside to this little chapel, this little Methodist chapel, and there was hardly anyone there because of the weather. And one of the deacons got up, because the, the main pastor didn't make it, so one of the deacons got up with a little fear and trembling and just began to speak. And I think it's Isaiah 40, I think it is, where it's, um, it says, Look unto me from the ends of the earth. Look unto me, God your Savior, or something like that. And the deacon simply got up, read the verse, and says, it said, God says, look, look. He said, how difficult is it to look? Just one glance, one look in faith. And Spurgeon's testimony is, he said, when that guy first got up to speak, Spurgeon in his heart was like, well, how is this guy speaking? He can't even put a sentence together properly. You know, and he's like critiquing him. But then the Holy Spirit got a hold of Spurgeon's heart. And, and he, God used that man to bring Spurgeon to the Lord. There's a sense of humor and a beauty in that. And he chose the disciples and, and he uses us. First Corinthians 1, not many mighty, not many noble, not many strong, but, but he's chosen us, the weak and the, you know. That's it, yeah, chosen the foolish, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm a Christian, 
I felt so nice inside to just tell her that I belong to Jesus when she belonged to something that, that's so opposed to us. Yeah. And to me, that's my witness. Yeah. There is, I won't call it a disaster, but terrible, terrible weather and hurricanes going on across the Atlantic and people being killed, we see on the news. Could you not lead us in a prayer for their safety? Yeah, we can do that. We can do that. So, Father, we do take a moment to pray for those situations of uh, people being evacuated and uh, rescued and people in trouble and in peril for their lives and uh, we pray for the emergency services and just your great grace on on those states and places that are affected God just send people help us Christians rescue us and we trust you for your purpose and grace revealed in that in Christ's name Amen Anyone else closing burning question? Okay, so um, so be reading Acts 1 and 2. And if you do have any questions that come to mind as you read it, you can jot them down and we'll see you next week, okay?